Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Rehumanized Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Rehumanized Podcast. Today, I am being joined by Nick Reynosa, who is the Director of Public Policy at the Society for Ethical Research, or CERNOW. Their mission is to document, expose, and mobilize against unethical fetal organ harvesting. We're going to talk a little bit about exactly what that means and the work that the Society for Ethical Research is doing to stop it. So welcome, Nick. Thank you for having me, Herb. So the focus of the CERNOW campaign um, has really been on the medical research going on at the University of California, San Francisco. Over the past year, I've been down to UCSF a couple times to help raise awareness about this issue, and I think the attention on it is only growing. So I think it's really important that you're here today to tell our listeners about it. Um, But before we get into it, I don't usually do this, but I do want to give a quick warning that what we're going to talk about gets pretty dark. Um, It's the Rehumanized podcast. We deal with consistent life ethic issues, but um, so nothing's ever cheery. But this particularly, for me at least, I think is sort of another level um, at some point. So I just want to throw that warning out there that this episode might be a little bit more disturbing than uh, past episodes. Um, So Nick, can you tell us what is going on at UCSF? So I just briefly going over um, UCSF's fetal harvesting program. Uh, UCSF is, you know, the abortion training capital of the world. Um, It is also a a leader in pro-abortion legislative uh, advocacy. Um, And it's an essential link in the supply chain for uh, human fetal organs and experimentation. And this is a lot of this information has been uncovered through the brave work of David Delayden and the, our group, Society for Ethical Research, is uh, partnering with Pro Life San Francisco and Survivors LA to, um, you know, be nonviolent direct action, um, you know, citizen activism in the Bay Area to document and expose um, these human rights violations and call for more ethical alternatives and. Um, the procedures that uh, are done at UCSF are definitely among the most extreme abortion procedures in the world. Um, and definitely, you know, you talk about rehumanizing. This is the, the highest level of dehumanization of the unborn that I've seen. In, and I've been doing pro-life work about 10 years. And so um, today we're just going to talk about, you know, the work that we've done, the pressure that we've put on them. And, uh, also, the, the the procedures themselves, how they may may violate federal law, and uh, also sort of the ethical implications uh, with the scientific community, and um, you know, with COVID and other things, and all, all the different things that are entailed in, in fetal tissue research. Okay, uh, so I, I I have a hard time even talking about this. I think I think I think with a lot of um, sort of pro life work that I end up doing, it. It's easy to sort of, I guess, think of it in as like a philosophical point that like, especially when I, when you're talking about embryos who obviously are human beings and they deserve human rights, it's sort of easy to, to not really think of them as 
persons, even though we know that they are and they deserve rights. Um, but that's not what we're talking about. This, when we say fetal organ harvesting and this unethical research, we're not talking about uh, like embryonic stem cell research, which I think is a lot of people's first impression. Uh, these are, I think, Nick, usually viable children, right? Uh, a great many of them. Uh, the weeks usually are uh, between 18 to 24 weeks. Um, anything above 21 weeks would be viable. So I think it's definitely fair to say a great many of them. And we have at least, and this is a very conservative number, at least 288 um, victims in that age range, just from the contracts that we've discovered uh, through the, the great work of like Robert Byrd. He's just kind of piecemealed, found these contracts, and we've kind of extrapolated out the number 288. So definitely... Uh, dozens, possibly hundreds of viable uh, fetuses um, in that age range. So yeah, and you know, it's it's interesting, you know, you're vegan, Herb, and I think a lot of people who are, you know, care for animals as well, it's the, the reality of the violence that, you know, brings them to care. And when we talk about these late-term procedures, it's sort of like distinguishing, like you said, between the philosophical and the embryonic to this real like flesh and blood violent uh, act. And I, I think that's why this is such a hard topic to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I know. I think I just, you know, I know that uh, late term abortion, or we're not supposed to call it late term, later abortion, post viability abortion um, is, is less common. And I think that's like a talking point you hear a lot, that it's only X percent of, uh, of abortions in the United States. But when you look at, you know, an ultrasound of a child at 21 weeks or 24 weeks, um, th that looks like a person. It, they really don't look that far off from, you know, what we look like when we're born, especially because some of them are born and are, you know, <laughs> human beings given the right to life uh, by the state at that point. Um, and it's just, I, I don't know. I, I think for me, late-term abortion... I, it, it's just, it's so hard to think about because I think it, it's easy to dehumanize someone who doesn't really look like what your idea of a human is. But, you know, the people doing this, they know, they're, they see, they can see their face. Uh, and it's just, uh, it's just so upsetting for me. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the other thing that I wanted to ask about, um, something that Cernal talks about a lot, and I know I've done a lot of work with uh, Teresa Bukovinak with Pro-Life San Francisco, is this, uh, this idea that there are children not just being killed in the elective abortion procedures, then being used for medical research, but that there's a possibility and probability that some of them are being born alive. Definitely. Um, you see, the thing is, is that a, a traditional um, later term abortion is, is very violent, very traumatic um, dismemberment and such things like that. Digoxin, which is a toxic substance that's very similar to potassium chloride, which is actually used in lethal injections of inmates. So that gives you the idea, the level of toxicity of the substance. But anyway, in order to have pristine tissue, um, they ha the doctors have to get more creative with these procedures. And um, there's, there's two main procedures. There's a, a live dismemberment or D&E, which is where the extremities are removed. And then you have an intact abdomen, which is then dissected afterwards. And then you also have a procedure 
known as in vivo, which means in the living, which is actually invented at the University of Pittsburgh. So we have this sort of macabre connection, San Francisco and Pittsburgh, with this, unfortunately. But um, but these uh, what these procedures allow it allows the procedure to be less traumatic physically on on the body, and it makes it more um, suitable for experimentation later. Um, and but the problem is because it's less traumatic. It, it reduces the certainty of uh, fetal demise. So, and this is why many professional abortionists view these procedures as sort of beyond the pale and far too risky, and they refuse to do them. Um, and, and it's the same thing with staff and patients. Uh, there was one uh, medical journal that I read talking about how, you know, over 90% of patients wanted assurance of fetal demise, and many physicians and staff agreed because. The, the idea of a, of a born alive uh, or, or a live birth during an abortion would uh, be traumatic for the doctor, for the staff, for the patient. So these are, I mean, even in the community, the abortion community, these are considered extreme procedures. And uh, according to the Society for Family Planning, up to 50% of the time, these, uh, these children are born alive. And if they are not given care, that would be a violation of federal law. And um, that's why we're seeking transparency, because if we know that there's been, for example, 288 victims, we don't have any transparency of, as to the number that were born alive or the care they received or did not receive. And the lack of reporting it is even a crime, not just not, not just denial of care, but the lack of reporting as well. So these are all goals that we're working towards to try to have more transparency and accountability at UCSF. Mm -hmm. I think that that statistic, when I first heard it, I immediately didn't believe it, that up to 50% of the time, these infants could be being born alive and then dissected for the medical research. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I think, I think Teresa first, you know, posted something about that or told me that. And I immediately assumed, I think, oh, it, what, Society for Family Planning, what is that, some kind of pro-life group that... That's that's where the stats coming from. Not that I think, you know, pro-life groups are making up stats, but things can look a little different. And so I immediately went to their website and it's pro-abortion. It's a, there were studies on there that were like the lack of the harm that lack of access to abortion causes. You know, this is not some sort of like, you know, right wing conspiracy to accuse doctors of, you know, killing actual infants mm -hmm. um, like this is happening and it's not even that controversial it's just that the doctors are just like yeah that's what happens which to me is insane that that's going on and that this isn't a national conversation well i think there's three parts to that herb uh the first part is people need to understand that in order for you know a typical abortion to be successful there has to be some kind of you know damage done to the fetus usually through like um, the joxin or through blood loss or organ damage or something like that. But with the, especially with the in vivo procedure, you know, there's really no blood loss. There's no digoxin. So the only thing that would really cause fetal demise is just the fact that it's a very young fetus. And so for, especially for the ones over 21 weeks, they're, they're coming out of the birth canal. They haven't really experienced any trauma. So if they're old enough, that's why the, the numbers are so high. Another issue is um, and I think in the movie Gosnell, it really touches on this well. You have a certain percentage of abortionists who are practicing, you know, what I would call civil disobedience, where there are abortion regulations on the books. For example, like the the 
the guarantee of care for infants born alive, where they feel that those laws are immoral and they're deliberately, as, as Gosnell said, you know, disobeying those laws intentionally. And then thirdly, you have um, pro-abortion politicians who look the other way and not to go easy on the Republicans either because they haven't, you know, it been super strong in enforcement either when they've had the opportunity. But you factor those three things together, and it it, it makes sense how this and this horrible thing can happen. And um, you know, I think regardless of whether you're pro-choice or pro-life, if the law states that they are to be given care, then whether you're pro-choice or pro-life is irrelevant. You follow the law, or you pay the consequences. Yeah, I I remember this kind of discourse came up a lot. Uh, Back in 2019, when the Republicans were really pushing for the Born Alive Infants Protection Act, which um, basically I think was an extension of the current laws on the books that say, you know, these these children born alive during abortions deserve health care and they, they should be treated as, you know, any other child born in that uh, gestational age. Um, but this, this law, um, they were attempting to sort of give that teeth and make it more enforceable uh, to prevent situations like what we're talking about. Um, and I just remember thinking, you know, the friends that I have, the colleagues that I have, who genuinely believe that healthcare is a human right, um, and, you know, say that kind of thing and say everyone deserves healthcare, and then are willing to sort of just exclude this group of people who are born alive during abortions and just like, no, they can, at, at best, they can be ignored and they can die on their own. At worst, we're going to dismember them and use their body parts for medical research. And it's just mm. so unfortunate for, like, for me as someone who does, you know, believe healthcare is a right. I, I am an advocate for that um, sort of outside of my work with Rehumanize um, to see, you know, this group of people just completely denied even you know, even stuff like comfort care, um, and instead are being dissected alive, you know, it's, I I don't know, this issue, I just, I I sometimes with a lot of anti-abortion stuff, I, I think that I am, I get concerned that I am losing my mind, like, I, I must be wrong, like, I, there's no way I live in a society where routinely, completely legally children are just being killed and about half the country is fine with that and our politicians are doing almost nothing to stop it um and the ones who are doing something to stop it are just talking about you know defunding it um and i i feel like i must be wrong like maybe pro-choice people have to be right but then i look at the evidence that's right in front of me and it's like no this is happening and it's not on the news every night like maybe Tucker Carlson will run a segment on abortion every six months Mm. and that's the best we can ask for. And I, I I don't know. I just don't understand why. Well, I I think it's a, there's several factors in that, you know, we live in a, I'm, I'm, I often think of the Milgram experiment, you know, where Mm -hmm. fake doctors told people to shock people. So we obviously defer a lot to scientific experts and, and, and in a lot of ways that's good. But the thing is, unfortunately, you know, the stuff we see at UCSF is just part of a long history of um, bad ethics and science. So I, I can think of the, the Mangala experiments, the Tuskegee Airmen experiments, um, you know, experiments against the mentally handicapped. 
and so forth. And, um, and, and, and basically what it is, is when you have people that are, you know, otherized or made less than whether it's Jewish people or African American people or handicapped people or whatever, whatever the case may be in this case, the unborn is that, you know, the typical standards of ethics are, are reduced. And also too, I think sometimes in this search for the greater good or, or what have you that scientists engineers you know i live in silicon valley and sometimes they say you know move fast and break things well they don't they, they just because you can do something doesn't mean you should and um when we look at sort of like the, the gold standard of of scientific ethics you know there's been pushback from the scientific community about these you know basic protections for patients and you know that just reminds me that we constantly have to you know aspire for our science to be better and push our scientists to be better and we respect their knowledge but they're not perfect and just because you wear a white coat or a black coat or a blue coat you know violence is violence bad ethics is bad ethics and uh, I think if we take that that principle um, we can do better and, and and just shortly you know you were talking about the uh, extremism I, I think about other issues you know sometimes where the smallest you know most common sense, regulation is seen as like tantamount to a full abolition you know like if we oppose these procedures somehow that's tantamount to the handmaid's tailor it's it's not a really logical rational discourse and i don't think these people um are being fair or intellectually honest because uh abortion rights in america would not change drastically if these procedures stopped but a lot of times it's it's framed in that way because any kind of Anything less than full carte blanche is seen as like tantamount to the handmaid's tale or something. And I don't think we're going to get very far if that's the level of discourse that we're having. Well, I think that from the pro-choice side, I think that almost has to be the level of discourse. Because when we start to say, okay, you know, a viable child, someone who is now 24 weeks old, well, they deserve rights. Why doesn't that make sense for a 21-week-old or a 20-week-old? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you, you just become pro-life, which is what I'm hoping that they do. <laughs> um, yeah. But what you what were you were saying about the history of sort of um, medical experimentation, um, re I think really rings true. And it is important to note that throughout history, um, especially when you think of things like uh, gynecology and reproductive health care, um, the, the really sordid and just racist history of um, a lot of that in the United States, uh, really just like intense abuse of, of Black women's bodies um, to sort of make medical advancements is something that this sort of reminds me of in, in some ways, um, but makes me think, you know, we're not against the medical advancement. You know, I... I want, you know, cures for the diseases that they're working on. And, you know, I want to improve our our ability to, uh, you know, help people with disabilities and, and all these other things. Um, we're just saying that there are other means that you can, you know, go about this with. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, especially the, the topic on everyone's mind now is COVID. And uh, mm -hmm. I was thinking about the relevance of our work as far as, you know, they were talking about the different COVID vaccines that were coming out and, you know, some were possibly sourced through fetal cells and some were not. And the thing with that is important is I'm 100% pro 
vaccines as long as they're ethically sourced. And the concern that I had was for your average person that's not like us, you know, we're deeply invested in the pro-life movement. If someone came to them and said, you know, I can give you your normal life back if you take this vaccine that was, you know, possibly sourced with fetal cells, the average person probably isn't going to care. They're just like giving my normal life back. But the thing is, is that's why if we were able to completely ban fetal experimentation, we wouldn't be put in these, you know, possibly difficult situations. Now, thankfully, we do have um, ethically sourced COVID vaccines. And, you know, and I would totally recommend that everyone take those ethically sourced vaccines. But, you know, I'm just concerned that we're not always going to be that fortunate. And I don't want to ever be put in a situation where normal people have to make that very difficult decision. And, um, and I, and we're very pro healthcare. We're very pro science. Um, you know, uh, the Trump administration has given $20 million to, uh, ethical alternatives with something, which was something to the effect of 10 times greater than like the current amount that, um, for that particular project that they canceled, which was like in the order of like $2 million. Um, so, and that, that project you're talking about was the one that required the, the two, Yes, that was that was the uh, UCSF contract, correct? Or one of the UCSF. Con- I mean, to be clear, there are, I believe, you know, over a hundred um, fetal programs throughout the country with funding from the NIH of 115 million. But when the Trump administration canceled that particular one at UCSF, citing lack of transparency and safeguards and so forth, um, they replaced it with a 20 million dollar fund. So, but I think if for those who are you know, experts in those alternatives, you know, they use something called uh, pluripotent cells, which are adult stem cells, which are, have the advantage of also having the flexibility of fetal cells. Because one of the things that um, scientists like about fetal cells is they're very malleable. So if you can have adult stem cells that have that malleability, then you kind of get the best of both worlds. So that's some experiments that they're, uh, that they're working on through that. And, uh, but I totally agree with what you said. You know, we're totally pro-science, we're totally pro-progress, but, you know, we don't take a utilitarian approach on this. It's not like, you know, if, if we only have to, you know, abort this many fetuses to save this many people, uh, because if you use that kind of logic, you, you could, you know, justify a hundred people, a thousand people, a million people, it never ends. But if you have a principled position that the patient is paramount and the patient is only there, we're only there to serve the patient, the patient is not there to serve others, then you, you know, you abolish that type of experimentation, and then you, um, you don't use that utilitarian approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I, I, you know, I think I, sort of as a catch-all, I am quick to say I oppose fetal organ harvesting, um, but that's not, you know, entirely true, like, you know, I'm not against you know, medical research on cadavers who have died natural causes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think if, if I, I know people, I, I believe who have uh, donated the remains of their child um, after miscarriage to medical research. Um, and, you know, I'm not opposed to that. Um, I, mm-hmm. I think what's important to, to make clear is that these are elective abortions. And as a result, because, um, you know, Trump did cancel one contract, but there's still, you know, many and a lot that are privately funded. And, you know, I'm sure Joe Biden does not have the same qualms about fetal tissue research that I do. Um, so we'll see what what his, um, you know, 
funding looks like. Um, but that is essentially creating a monetary demand for elective abortion. Well, particularly when you think about the parameters, just specifically that UCSF mentions in their contract, you know, they want fetuses of a certain gestational age. They want, you know, uh, fetuses that are not the result of sexual violence. They want fetuses with no abnormalities, you know, so that not only does that take away a lot of the main pro-choice talking points like sexual assault or fetal abnormalities or things like that, but it also creates an, let's say you're a woman who's planning to have a, you know, a, a, a normal first trimester abortion, but they need candidates for these second trimester abortions. And I'm not saying that I have evidence that any one particular woman did this, but what I'm saying is, is that in order to meet those parameters, you have to have women that are far along a certain point, like I said, 18 to 24 weeks, and that they haven't resulted from sexual violence, and they have no fetal abnormality. So that sort of narrows that group. And so if you're looking for candidates, that could create an incentive to um, to extend the pregnancy to do that. And also, um, you know, uh, it... it by wanting the procedure to be a certain way, some doctors have brought up the fact there's ethical concerns because the doctor should the pa- the patient should be the one just wanting this procedure a certain way, not the doctor, because the doctor may have an incentive to extend the pregnancy to have that particular time frame. So that could create a a, a malincentive as well. So I I totally yeah. agree with that. Yeah, there's also the um, I'm not sure if there's evidence of uh, UCSF. Uh, doctors doing this, but I remember what came out in the uh, the, the, the tapes that David Delighton released, um, the undercover footage, that at Planned Parenthood, at least, you know, there was evidence of, you know, at, at least someone claiming that they were altering the type of procedure that they're doing in order to get these contracts, you know, to, to be able to use the tissue more effectively for medical research. Um, and that, I believe, is illegal, right? Absolutely. And, um, you know, especially when you talk about like the in vivo abortion, if you look at just a a picture of the abortions that were banned through the Partial Birth Abortion Act, and if you look at the uh, a picture of the in vivo abortion, they're extremely similar to the point where just the, the manner in which the fetus um, exits could make the procedure illegal. Uh, and David Delayden talks about this, and, it, and if that is the case, then it is a violation of law. So, um, but uh, yeah, I mean that—that's the thing is, th- and that's why oversight and enforcement or lack thereof are so important because you know we ne- we can't trust the industry to follow these regulations. We, they, we can't trust honest reporting or transparency. So. Uh, we can't trust the media because it's only independent outlets that are really reporting this. And you said occasionally Tucker Carlson will, but it's it's pretty it's pretty limited. Um, and so, um, but yes, I, I totally agree that the procedures can be altered and that would be illegal. Another thing that I wanted to to talk about that um, I've learned recently uh, related to this topic too is exactly what types of uh, research is is being done, or what the the exact projects are. Um, mm-hmm. I know one, at least, was a, a sort of human mouse experiment. I, I don't mm-hmm. fully understand it. Can you explain what 
what that is. I've just seen the pictures and they're horrific, like especially as someone who is vegan and I've, um, Mm -hmm. I organized around when I was in college, stopping the violence against mice in uh, Pitts Mm -hmm. research labs. And so the pictures of that upset me, um, you know, so outside of the abortion question. mm -hmm. So I'm not a scientist, so I'm going to give you the the high school version of this, but uh, yeah. um, But uh, essentially what they do is, some of the main organs that they harvest are like the thymus and the liver. And a lot of the research they do is related to immunotherapy because they're trying to find things for like HIV and and so forth. So the immune system is of great interest to them. And so by injecting the human organ tissues into the mice, what they're attempting to do is to give the mice an immune system comparable to the human immune system and then therefore they can experiment on the mice to see you know the reactions of uh, the immunotherapy to different situations and that would help them theoretically you know with um, HIV or other things like that but the thing that's um, is so horrific about it is you know in order for the the liver tissue or the thymus tissue to be uh, suitable to be injected into the mice it has to be of top grade and it has to be as normal as possible and so I mean we've all seen like the movies where someone dies and then they put their heart on ice or something and it goes on a helicopter and then they you know transplant and it's very similar with fetal tissue research because you know you're talking about uh, you know in one instance the the language was a, a maximum of six hours between removal from the fetus and and the use because they want that tissue to be brand new fresh and so to give you a perspective on that um, at Zuckerberg General Hospital in San Francisco um, the the abortion these abortion procedures take place in a building called uh, 6g and literally I would say probably like 300 yards away is the um, the fetal experimentation lab like it's like a five to ten minute walk away you know just one building over and um and it's uh that's how fresh this tissue is sometimes and um and so i I, i'm just trying to give people a perspective on like give them like a, a real world picture of this is literally a dissected organ out of a fresh cadaver into a living mice within hours sometimes yeah yeah while the the mother the patient um is in still recovery for it definitely but, yeah. and yeah I, I just find that so I don't, I don't know traumatic um to to think about to think about sort of going through the, the very invasive um procedure of a late-term abortion especially one like this where no feticide is used um that and then sort of as you are recovering your you know parts of your child are being injected into mice in order to to create these humanized mice to then you know torture the mice through cruel experimentation and i just i don't it's that that's why I gave the warning on this episode that this is going to be a little dark because I just don't I feel like my brain doesn't even comprehend that there are people who go into work every day and do this for a living and that um for in many cases you know our tax dollars are paying for it with grants um 
and probably even more so, there's, you know, private businesses that are looking to profit off of this once the research is complete. Definitely. And, you, uh, know, you know, I, I often I often think we think of, um, I've heard the saying, you know, like the comfortable pro-choice view that kind of doesn't acknowledge the violence of abortion, doesn't acknowledge the humanity of the abortion, of, of the fetus. Um, and, but I do think there's sort of a comfortable pro-life view as well, because I mean, I, I really appreciate you talking about this topic, Herb, because not everyone does, you know, this is definitely not, um, this is definitely more advanced topic. It's, it's much grittier. It's much, uh, it's much more honest. And, uh, I think that there are people out there that are very well-intentioned and good-hearted and they're pro-life, but they have, this is the worst of the worst. And they, they may not have uh, sort of encountered that yet or been exposed to it. And um, I, I think all aspects of the pro-life movement are important and we should talk about it. it. None of it should be ignored, but I definitely think for people who are, you know, wanting to learn more about the movement, you know, extreme examples like this are also important to talk about because you're going in, you know, eyes wide open, you're understanding the level of dehumanization in our country and how bad it can get if it's not addressed. And I think those are all important things. Yeah. I mean, I also, I think, and I hope that, you know, for the sort of comfortable pro-choice person, often I think, you know, they're, you know, like many Americans, you know, they they don't like abortion, but they think it might be necessary, and they definitely don't like late-term abortion. Um, and so when I look at this issue, I hope at least that this is a potential olive branch to that sort of mushy middle who, you know, I'm personally pro-life, um, and I would never get an abortion, but I understand why other people need it. Um, you know, to, to sort of see the the pictures of these babies, um, you know, the actual victims or just a, a fetus uh, with, through an ultrasound at 24 weeks. I mean, it, it's very hard, in my opinion, to deny their humanity unless you are about to profit off of it. Um, and I, I just hope that this potentially could be one of those issues that can bring people on board at least closer to the pro-life side than the sort of just blind trust in the abortion industrial complex that whatever they're doing is probably fine and Gosnell was just a one-off extreme case uh, that, and no one else is like that. Um, that's what I hope at least when I try to talk about this issue that it can be sort of a, a radicalizing almost moment for pro-choice people who think that abortion is just sort of, uh, I don't know, I well getting I rid of some tissue. Well, I just have a couple of things to add to that. You know, any way you slice it, it's it's pretty politically easy, I think, to achieve this because if you look at the numbers, you know, the majority of women, independents, Democrats, uh, oppose these late-term procedures. And that's just late-term procedures in general, not even these specific, like, extreme, extreme late-term procedures. And then also internationally, you know, these are these procedures are outliers even when compared to most of Western Europe, where the restrictions are are, are much uh, the, the the term of the pregnancy is restricted to a much a lower date, and um, and so I think, and also too, you know, the extreme abortion extremism in the Democratic Party has cost them a lot of votes from 
people that would otherwise vote for them. And I think that would be a great olive branch to those people to say, hey, we're reasonable people. We can still generally support abortion rights, but not this extremism. And so I agree that for people who are willing to be intellectually honest about it, there, there could be some progress there. And maybe so if they come to reject the just the abortion lobbyists and, and kind of come to more of a, an international center like wh where Europe's at or where most American voters are at in their opinions on this. Yeah. And so I guess to me, when I, when I think of that kind of thing with a lot of, I think, abortion legislation, there is, there is so much, uh, I guess, diversity of thought within this country about exactly what they want abortion legislation to look like you know a lot of people want it to be legal but with some regulation um and that is just so not represented at all in the modern democratic party and you know the reason why is pretty obvious it's that you know who's funding the modern democratic party it's planned parenthood it's uh NARAL, it's emily's list it's you know these groups that exist to either provide or promote legal abortion and so I think to make any sort of these uh, kind of incremental gains to uh, save lives of unborn children, um, we really need a groundswell of support from people all over the political spectrum, people of all, you know, socioeconomic groups. We need everyone on board saying, hey, you know, even outside of my opinion, whether I'm pro-life or pro-choice, like, this extremism has got to go. Because otherwise, there's no incentive for, you know, politicians to sort of care about it enough um, to, to try to change these laws or to enforce the laws that are already in place. And so I think that's where the work of Sir Now really lies in education about it, making sure that people know about this and have an opinion on it. Um, you know, it can't just be something that no one knows about because it happens behind, you know, several layers of hospital doors and no one talks about it because it's not a popular topic. Mm -hmm. I, I, I have a couple things to say about that. Number one is, you know, sort of a, a silver lining in the, in the Democrats winning. I mean, obviously, from the pro-life point of view, there's some bad implications in that. But one thing I took away from that was, you know, Kamala Harris, of all the like 24 people that ran for president, she was by far the one most closely associated with the whole um, David Delighton situation and, and UCSF and, and all that, all those associated issues. And, you know, I think it's completely fair to say that of all the Democrats, who ran Kamala Harris had the most extreme abortion record of any of them. And I'm not just saying that because she's now vice president elect or because I work for Sarah now. I just think that's objectively true. And her yeah. treatment. I of mean, the, the thing about Kamala Harris, I think you're about to say, or the thing about the Kamala Harris, I think you're about to say is not only is she pro abortion, she is like anti pro lifer. She has targeted us. Um, mm -hmm you know, specifically David, um, but yeah, it's just, it's scary. <laughs> and that's, that's why David's fight, which continues. And it's important to remember, I don't work for David. We don't work for David directly, but we do build on his brave work and he's done. So, you know, the discussion on banning fetal 
you know, or unethical fetal experimentation. And, you know, he's been the, the root and branch of that. And any success that we've had has been because of him and his great work. And so, but I think it's so symbolic because the outcome of David's case is how, however that you know, resolves is, you know, symbolic as far as, rep, you know, we have Kamala Harris on one side who's, you know, persecuted David and been very unfair to him and supported UCSF and supported Planned Parenthood in their, you know, breaking of the law and so forth and not protected David's freedom of speech and journalistic rights and so forth. But, you know, we want to see that through. Sarah now wants to see it through and see David vindicated because it would be, you know, America saying that Kamala Harris's behavior was uncalled for and, and we aspire to do better. And, um, it's not, it's not even about a pro-choice or pro-life thing. It's about freedom of speech. It's about journalistic rights. It's about her integrity as a prosecutor and, and fairness and, and all of those issues. And I think so now that Kamala Harris is in her stage, that can be a great talking point for our cause and something we rally behind David. We expose Kamala Harris's extremism. And, and that's something that I'm looking forward to doing in the future. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess my only question left then is how can the listeners get involved? What what can, you know, rehumanized fans and colleagues and stuff do to work on this issue? Well, I, I think the, there's a couple things. On a local level, you know, there's, like I said, over 170 fetal programs. So if, you know, you go on the NIH, NIH site and you look at funding to particular universities, you know, find out if your local state university is involved with any kind of fetal experimentation and seek greater transparency. You know, one of the hardest things about this job, I think, is just how difficult it is to have a clear understanding of it. I mean, a lot of what I learned about this, I learned through Robert Byrd, who's just been, you know, tireless in his efforts, and he sort of piecemealed together this information. And But the thing is, not everyone has the amount of, of time that Robert or I have to do that. And I just want to make sure that people have more transparency. So looking into their local universities would be a great start. And if they're interested in helping us more generally, um, we've been uh, working on different legislation. There was uh, HR 573, which was the um, Integrity and Research Act, which was, you know, seeking to abolish, you know, unethical fetal experimentation throughout the United States. And then there was also, like you were saying, HR 962, which was the extent, you know, the, the add-on to the, you know, Born Alive Infant Protection uh, Survivors Act. And uh, if they want to help us more directly, uh, in December, on December 19th, um, Society for Ethical Research will be back in San Francisco at Zuckerberg protesting. They'll also be at the, the Walk for Life in San Francisco in January. I believe it's January 23rd. Um, and so those are all ways they can come out and help us. Um, if, if someone has more time because of COVID, they're interested in an internship, an internship, um, they could uh, go to survivors.la and apply, um, and they could get uh, connected with our, we have a lot of young people that come for a couple months out to the Bay Area and help whenever, I mean, that's actually currently on hold because we're getting another group of young people. But when that starts again, it will be up in San Francisco. Um, uh, there'll probably be a house and there'll be like free room and board and such for the, for the interns. So definitely contact Jeff at survivors, uh, dot L LA for that. But, uh, yeah. I, I really appreciate your time, Herb, and all the great work that rehumanize does, especially you guys are sort of 
an unorthodox, you know, like a kind of a more holistic kind of like left wing, a uh, different kind of group. So that's a. Uh, I hate that, when people say we're left wing uh, or nonpartisan. Uh, I'm no. I'm conservative. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry, her, but you know what I mean. No, I understand. We're yeah. we're a little different. The yeah. fact that we have left wingers on staff and sort yeah. of in our orbit yeah. uh, makes us different enough. Yeah, so that's uh, that's important to the to have that voice, and I appreciate your friendship and all the work you do. And I hope to come back sometime later and give you lots of great updates about what we're doing. Absolutely. Uh, last thing, what is the website and social media so that we can follow the work of Sir Now? So. Um... If you can go to, there's survivors.la, which is sort of like the parent organization. And then there's also SareNow, which is S-E-R-N-O-W.org. And then um, on social media, it's Society for Ethical Research on Facebook. And then on Instagram and t- Twitter, it's S.E.E. Sorry, S.E.R.org. <laughs> sorry about that. That's a mouthful. Cool. <laughs> Well, sounds great. Thank you so much for coming on, Nick. Um, I hope you have a great night. Thank you, Her. Appreciate it. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to the Rehumanize podcast. To learn more, check out our website at rehumanizeintl.org or follow us on social media at rehumanizeintl.